Welcome to the Good Clinical Podcast presented by ACRO. For ACRO, I'm Robert Siegel. The National Institutes of Health describes good clinical practice, or GCP, as a set of international guidelines. These guidelines help to assure the safety, integrity, and quality of clinical trials. ACRO's Good Clinical Podcast draws upon these GCP standards to present a series of conversations conversations about how the clinical research industry aims to make trials better for patients. These conversations with industry leaders shine a spotlight on hot topics in clinical research, from recruiting more diverse populations into trials to using technologies that can reduce the burdens on trial participation. ACRO's GCP brings together some of the sharpest minds in clinical research to discuss how innovation can help us build better trials. Now to our host, Sophia McLeod. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of GCP. I'm your host, Sophia McLeod, and today I'm joined by two ACRO board members, Cindy Verst, who serves as president, R&DS Design and Delivery Innovation at IQVIA, and Peyton Howell, Chief Operating and Growth Officer at ParXL. Cindy and Peyton are here to continue the conversation we started with Jackie Kent and Katherine Greger in our first episode, All About Women in Clinical Research. In today's episode, we'll discuss improvements the industry has made and apply a global lens to the discussion as well. I hope you enjoy. Peyton, Cindy, thanks so much for joining me today. We're really excited to get into this topic, largely discussing women in clinical research with you as you both had quite a fantastic career in the industry. Uh, This is part two of our discussion on this topic. Part one was actually episode one of GCP with two other ACRO board members, Jackie Kent and Catherine Gregor. And I'm really looking forward to diving in with both of you today. I'd like to start first with our little icebreaker question we want to ask everyone who joins us on GCP, and that is, what does good clinical practice mean to you? So maybe, Cindy, we'll start with you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and certainly with my friend Peyton Howell. Um, So uh, good clinical practice, GCP, what does it mean to me? Well, I I took the liberty of going into chat GPT to ask the question, uh, what is good clinical practice? And, uh, you know, of course, what I received, and obviously it did not hallucinate, it gave me the right definition of the international ethical and scientific quality standards for designing, recording, and reporting trials that involve the participation of human subjects. But, you know, clearly that's something near and dear to all of our hearts. And, And of course, at the very essence, it's ensuring uh, patient safety and, and integrity and, and quality of the data of the clinical trials. But importantly to me, um, you know, it, it's the benefits of GCP. And boy, I'll tell you, it's very personal um, in so much as GCP to me means that I'm helping my family members and friends with regard to the acceleration of the development and and the access, the approval and access of new drugs, new cures, new treatments, um, and getting those to our patients faster. So in a nutshell, uh, boy, I I say that because just recently I've had a number of family members that um, have required um, intervention, and I'm just so proud of our community and um, just uh, concluding that's what GCP means to me. 
Peyton, what about you? Well, thanks for having me. And boy, it's always a tough act to follow Cindy Verse, but uh, what a pleasure to be here with her. You know, I'll build on Cindy's answer because it was perfect. Um, For me, good clinical practice means simply putting patients first. Um, You know, patients are protected. I think patient safety being paramount, but also that the results and outcomes of the clinical trial are reliable. It's that simple. um, And we all have to live it every day in our industry. So putting patients first. Amazing. Yeah. I think that's a really great point that resonates across the whole industry. Let's get into the meat of the conversation for today. Uh, You've each had very different paths in the industry. Can you, maybe we'll go with Peyton first. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started and your career path to where you are now? Sure, I am happy to. Um, I have always been in healthcare, um, but I'm not a scientist. I actually started from the business side. So I was working in hospitals, ended up getting my master's in health administration, and was lucky enough to find a niche early in my career that combined operations and finance. And that was to work to really optimize reimbursement and patient access to new technologies, which obviously has a connection to clinical research. Um, Did that for a number of years, both in a large consulting company, but then as a founder of what was initially a very small reimbursement consulting firm in the early 1990s, and then grew that uh, to be a large business that I sold to a very large publicly held company. And that opened up the door for me to do more with that, right? Not just to grow that business to its full potential, but to also be able to acquire other businesses, integrate them, and really work across a wide wide range of sites of care in the, you know, emerging, you know, bio, it was really the biotech boom, if you will, of specialty pharmaceuticals across sites of care. So the experience honestly served me well to actually make the move into clinical research. So I can tell you, you can actually move into clinical research. A lot of people start and grow their whole careers in clinical research. I obviously grew from the commercial side of pharma. Um, and five years ago, joined Parkcell initially as our chief commercial officer and now as our chief operating officer. And the common theme really in my career is just that patient access to new treatment options. That is my personal passion and uh, it is what fuels me every day. Um, And it's been really exciting for me to be part of ACRO and the ACRO board for the past four years almost and get to work with other colleagues that, that share that same passion. Amazing. I mean, we're very happy to have you on behalf of the ACRO staff. Very happy to have you on board with the board. On board with the board. There you go. Sounds good. Uh, Cindy, how about you? Yeah, talk about a hard act to follow. Uh, so I, I'd love to say that I had a very deliberate career pathway, but you know, it, it was serendipitous at best. Uh, I, I began my career um, focused in in healthcare and in the sciences, I guess in STEM, uh, with a uh, PharmD degree, uh, biochemist, biochemistry master's degree. And I actually began... Um, my pursuit on the pharma side in medical affairs, uh, supporting, designing, and developing and conducting um, late phase, phase 3B4 uh, clinical trials, and uh, actually then moved into the CRO industry and uh, building, along with a fabulous team, uh, a real-world late phase um, global organization, applying those very same skill sets that I gleaned on the pharma side. Um, and then took a stent um, opportunity, you know, called and, and uh, of course, seeing some uh, continued growth uh, trajectory and, you know, having been uh, a provider, a, a pharmacist, putting myself through the graduate program. And then, of course, being on the pharma side, on the CRO side, I then went to a payer 
uh, United Health Group and uh, worked with an Optum Insight in, in building another real world late phase organization. Uh, and then um, saw yet another opportunity and uh, took a leap over to Quintiles, Legacy Quintiles back in the day, and similarly built a, um, with a terrific leadership team, a global real world late phase org and uh, had the unique opportunity of helping uh, to bring about the merger with Legacy Quintiles and Legacy IMS. And of course, with my passion on the real world evidence side, it was really just uh, a dream come true for me uh, personally. And then to ready the organization, uh, stepped uh, upstream into the R&D uh, sector and uh, using all of those assets to help us design and deliver clinical trials in a, um, if you will, more deliberate, uh, predictive, reliable manner. And that is my current role, uh, President of Design and Delivery Innovation. And like uh, Peyton uh, just absolute um, honor to serve on the ACRO board and working synergistically with all of our fellow uh, CRO partners and our technology partners. You know, we we had to really evolve ourselves to get fit for futuristic purpose. And, you know, suffice it to say that, you know, the ACRO board now comprised of the, the whole healthcare ecosystem of sorts that is helping our customers uh, design, deliver, and most importantly, our patients being on the receiving end. So 30-year um, journey, Peyton and I started very early in age, right, Peyton? <laughs> you were five years old. Five or 10 years old. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> ish, ish. That leads me to another question, thinking about the length of time you've both been in your careers and you know the changes you may have seen over the course of your careers. I know when I started at Acro, Cindy, I think you might've been the only woman on the Acro board. Uh, and six years later, that's very different. We're almost 50-50 um, male-female split on the board. And that's been wonderful to see. As a woman, it's very, you know, inspiring to see both of you in your roles. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what changes you've noticed um, in the representation of women in the workforce uh, in our industry over your careers? I mean, I'm certainly um, have experienced being the only female in the room, particularly early in my career. I would say it was most notice noticeable at those upper ranks, both when you were working with a pharmaceutical company sponsor um, or in the, the boardroom of the companies that I was part of. Um, but that has definitely changed. I think one important fact is that, that we certainly see is that within healthcare, women's rep representation in healthcare actually is higher than corporate America overall. So that's certainly a plug for, for women to get into healthcare. And we've also seen real progress um, in our industry. Um, I'll be anxious to hear uh, Cindy share some of her data. Um, but overall, for ParXL, our workforce is basically 70% female, which is amazing. Um, but obviously, as you as you mentioned, of the upper ranks, it's really not where it needs to be. I, I am delighted to share that we've seen big progress. I can tell you this has been an area of focus um, since I joined ParXL, so back in 2018. And so I've got some data to compare that, which is great. Um, for us, 46% of our vice presidents across the organization globally are women. That's up 12% since 2018, so pretty exciting. Um, and we see that actually we, where we had zero women at the C-suite level, we actually now have women represented and we're really tracking that very carefully. 
And at the highest level, we now have a majority female board of directors. That's also new for us in the past 18 months, but four of our seven board members um, are female. So it's been intentional, obviously. Uh, it does take time and it's certainly, we're not at the end zone. We can't call victory at this point, but we can certainly show progress. And I think it's one of the reasons I love to encourage you know young women to consider healthcare and clinical research in particular, because I think it is an area where you can control your own destiny. That's amazing. Yeah. Cindy, what have you seen at IQVIA and some of your other roles, I guess, as well? Yeah, I would say early in my career in a similar um, capacity, um, you know, three decades. Um, gosh, I feel so old. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we've seen the, um, how shall I say, the the proportionality increase over time. But, I, you know, I have to say that early in my career, um, I was so blessed to have just incredible female role models that honestly, and, and that was my job one in pharma, uh, MD, PhD, female, and a very heavily prevalent um, white male uh, leadership realm. And um, she, and maybe this is foreboding for some of the other questions forthcoming, uh, but she actually set the pace for me in that, you know, be gender blind. You can do anything you want to do, set your North Star high and put your head down and get it. And honestly, not, you know, be it naively or otherwise, you know, I just thought, well, that's across the whole healthcare ecosystem. Okay, I'll do that. Uh, so, never really paid too much attention to it, really, not even as a manager, as an employee, uh, et cetera, let the, you know, the results do the talking, if you will. But uh, like Peyton, um, I can share that for IQVIA, uh, we, we have about 60% of our global workforce um, that are females. And uh, of that, uh, of that category or that cohort, about 51% of our um, managers are um, female. And, you know, clearly that gets lower um, to the more top of the ranks. Uh, but, you know, we're committed to maintain that culture of inclusion uh, in, in which women and people of diverse uh, backgrounds can fully contribute to our growth and success um, of, our, of our business matrix. But um, likewise, you know, we too have been expanding um, on our, our board of, of directors. And in fact, we have three uh, board members over the last, um, I, I would say, two to three fiscal years out of mm, maybe nine. So we don't have that majority just yet, but uh, making progress, I think, is the key uh, to highlight here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like, you know, both IQVIA and Parkcell are doing a really great job. Like you said, Peyton, of being intentional about this. And I think that's extremely important for, you know, what we can do to make this change going forward and make it a lasting change. I'm wondering if you think that there's anything more we can do, any strategies you'd love to implement um, to really keep driving forward on this path. I can start. There's, I definitely think there's a lot more we can do. There's a, a lot we can change. I mean, one thing that we're focused on looking at just globally is, you know, where do women drop off in those promotions? Because that's obviously where we need to put the most energy strategically. And certainly we've seen it in those higher levels. That's where we see really the, the numbers drop off. Um, one area we've had success, and it's just so foundational and builds off of Cindy's comment about the importance of mentorship, um, is we've really been invested 
investing in a, a more strategic mentoring and leadership program. We call it the Women in Leadership Program. We've actually now opened it up so it's um, men and women and modified it so it really is inclusive, but it allows also people to pick what works best for them. We found some women really needed a all-female group where they could really become vulnerable um, and others really wanted to be part of, you know, mixed groups and, you know, non-binary groups. So it's flexible, you know, in terms of being able to have that progression Um, and they get more access to our senior leaders as part of that. In fact, all of our leadership team are part of both mentoring as well as being guest speakers at those events. And I must say, you know, it's grassroots, it's not expensive, um, but it certainly has been impactful. And it's also as a leader has allowed me to really build relationships across the organizations that I wouldn't have. Um, and I've been really encouraging women to, to utilize, you know, those opportunities to their fullest, use it to open up other career paths and, and to consider different parts of the organization that they might not otherwise have had access or exposure to um, by being in a small group where they get to really know other parts of our business and other women leaders in particular. Yeah. And I, I would just build on what Peyton uh, has highlighted, you know, we at IQVIA, we have an ERG uh, named the Women Inspired Network, or WEN. And, you know, the the notion here is that we are trying to build at global, at regional, and at local levels. You know, we we think that that community, that building um, at each of those levels are so critically important. And quite frankly, you know, it, it it is not only synergistic and, and you know, it, it it pays back not only individually, but to the business. Yeah. Um, meeting, you know, within the community and reaching across aisles and business units, et cetera. So there's a it, it is, in fact, um, pardon the, the pun, a win, win, win um, across the board. And as Peyton uh, shared, we, too, are inviting men. Uh, to the Women Inspired Network, because this isn't exclusionary. Uh, you know, th- this is uh, absolutely a, a cause uh, worth participating. And I've got the honor to be the executive sponsor of WEN. And I, I would just share that, um, ironically, I, I was just uh, recently in uh, South Korea and hosting a big town hall. And it turns out that, and I know this isn't dissimilar to many of our global uh, enterprises, 95% of our workforce in South Korea are women. And and there the, the, the notion was, should we have a, a men's network here? Because we're a little overpopulated. So again, there are those uh, uh, regional subtleties that that we've got a uh, bear in, in in mind as well, but uh, I, I'm delighted with our industry and how we are really you know driving um, forward. And notwithstanding, you know, as I look around the acro board table, as I look around my personal IQVIA organization, and I know Peyton, you can say the same. You know, one important aspect here is mentorship, networking, and you know. I'll, I'll just speak for my myself, Peyton, because you're way younger than I. Uh, yeah, giving back, paying forward is something extremely important, and I know I speak on on your behalf too, Peyton. And, you know that that's another way that we're going to promulgate more females in this scientific, you know, pharma environment. Yeah, Cindy, you are spot on with that. I mean, I think we're both at the stages of our careers where that is really what is uh, most 
um, gratifying about what we can do in terms of paying that forward. I also am proud of our industry, um, the efforts that we've made, not just on gender diversity, but all types of diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, it's an area focus for ACRO. It's a separate subcommittee for ACRO. And each of our, our businesses, each of our companies really have lived that, both as their entity, but also how they're applying that to clinical research in and of itself, where it's so critically important, where we now have FDA guidance, um, even leading us towards supporting that. Um, so it's been an important area of change and innovation where I'm proud of our industry for being ahead of the emergence of that guidance and it, of it being a priority for our groups. Yeah, I mean, I think you're both really hitting the nail on the head here. And, you know, as ACRO staff, it's been very, you know, great to see the board buy in on some of these issues that we really want to pursue as a collective, as an industry together. I wanted to throw in, I don't know if it's a curveball question, uh, and you might say no, the answer might be no. But I was wondering if either of you, you know, feel that being a woman gives you a different perspective in your job. Do you think you approach certain things about your jobs differently than your male colleagues? You know, does there is there anything that really stands out to you about, you know, being a woman in STEM? Maybe I'll, uh, you know, I'll take take that. And Peyton, um, you know, please, please chime in. Uh, you know, I, I would say at first blush, no. Uh, you know, as I alluded to earlier, um, on the other hand, it does get me pondering. Yeah. Uh, when you double click in, is there some differences in, in the leadership style? And, you know, I, I recall a, a recent Corn Ferry uh, survey uh, amongst uh, the Fortune 500 CEOs. And in fact, there was a, a very puny statistic of only 9% of Fortune 500 CEOs are in fact women. And in that uh, assessment, there were a few takeaways, and one of which was the importance of female leaders as it pertains to the transfer, the transformational aspect of their leadership role, meaning having the ability to uh, strategize and empower uh, leaders, their people, and the radical thinking around the humanistic side. Now, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, uh, but these were just uh, takeaways that got my mind thinking because maybe I just haven't paid too close of attention. As I mentioned, I've just been kind of heads down coming from the Midwest. You know, my parents taught me, just work hard, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. Uh, but, you know, this notion about, you know, the uh, empowerment. Uh, as we lead, we're thinking with a broader community, a broader environmental, a broader planet-like uh, approach. Um, but Peyton, uh, over to you for your thoughts. Yeah, I think that actually, Cindy, you, you nailed it. I think we both have been just heads down. But when you step back, and maybe the pandemic caused me to step back a little bit more than in the past. But you know, empathy, you know, is a skill that, you know, I'd say women, at least if you had to generalize, you know, tend to, to have as a strength um, as empathy. And I think we're seeing that emerge really as one of the critical leadership characteristics that top talent is looking for um, overall. And I, I do think I've, I'm certainly guiding women to lean into that. I think in the past, we might've even resisted that wanting to conform to our perceptions of leadership. And I think now that we flipped a lot of that 
on its head during the pandemic. I think leaning into empathy, being the kind of person that people want to follow. Um, and I've been saying something in our organization, I, I, you know, that's actually resonated post pandemic, but are you spreading anything that people want to catch? And I think that kind of thinking is something that that really can resonate and where women can sometimes have an edge um, just naturally um, bringing that empathy and compassion um, into the workplace. Absolutely. I think it's really important what you're both saying here. I, you know, I think there are those sort of stereotypes about women leaders. And like you're saying, Peyton, some of them are, you know, good stereotypes. We should lean into being empathetic people, you know, there's nothing wrong with being an empathetic leader. And obviously, you know, we've touched on this a little bit, a lot of all of what we do really goes back to the patient. Uh, And I'm wondering, you know, if we think about when we have conversations about uh, diversity and inclusion more broadly, when we're thinking about um, racial and ethnic diversity, you know, we really want people to feel comfortable in a trial and sometimes seeing someone who looks like you, you know, that really helps you feel like you're being understood and that person can really guide you through a trial. And, you know, I'm wondering if we think about this from um, an on the ground trial standpoint, you know, do we see this sort of disparity translate when we're in a trial setting, you know, whether it's with PIs or female participants in trials? Uh, And then I'll come back for a part two. So, Relative to data, uh, according to a 2022 um, study by Harvard Medical School, uh, they concluded that women make up, on average, about 41.2% of clinical trial participants. That was a, an alarming, a, an alarmingly, pleasantly, uh, a, a, an alarmingly high statistic. So I, I thought that was that was you know, moving in the right direction. But that's despite the fact that women make up nearly 51% of the U.S. population. And the study went on to cite that women were underrepresented in clinical trials for a variety of reasons, including uh, concerns about the safety of drugs or devices predominantly in those um, Pregnant women or women that are of uh, reproduction potential, uh, lack of awareness of clinical trials, uh, uh, lack of childcare and transportation, and quite frankly, just overall concerns about time and effort, which that's not surprising, right? Uh, in terms of those um, elements of why underrepresentation relative to gender, uh, female uh, gender. But importantly, you know, the the study goes on, and and I use this study because I think it's very representative of other um, conclusions, other studies that, you know, solutioning, okay, so be that as it may, then what? You know, what do we do about that? And I think, you know, this is about patient access of all, you know, um, of all gender, um, uh, both male and female, but you know the, the the importance of educating women about the benefits of participating in clinical trials. Um, researchers and clinicians working. You mentioned Sophia the importance of investigators like me. You know, be it you know at, um, racial uh, uh, and you know or ethical um, um, diversity and, and females alike. And it goes back to that networking, that mentoring, you know, uh, concept, and just overall being very thought provocative in terms of 
the operationalization of clinical trials, uh, providing childcare, transportation, other white glove services that actually help them to balance uh, their, you know, work life, uh, family life, and participating in a clinical trial. Wow, there's not much to add. I love that data, um, Cindy. That's actually pretty dramatic. Um, and you're right, it shows really good gains because you're right, there's some natural challenges for women participating in clinical trials. So the inclusion exclusion criteria alone, um, including being pregnant or breastfeeding, et cetera, create some natural barriers um, that are significant, which means we all have to work harder to include. But I love your comments about focusing on just how do we remove the barriers uh, to participating in clinical research, make it easier. And I think that means really starting at the beginning, looking at, at optimizing protocols to make sure that they really are sensitive to patient participation. And I think when we think of the needs of any working parent, male or female, you really see the barriers are, are pretty significant from the way clinical trials run in the majority of trials today. How do we get clinical research into the community, make it accessible, and, and really make sure that, that every participant is fully supported? I think that's the challenge for our industry. Proud of the progress we're making and the attention on this, but we have a long way to go. I think that's the reality. And when you, we need all women in particular to be aware of clinical research as a care option, because they often are the ones making decisions for their households, like it sounds like Cindy is, in terms of seeking care, accessing care, being aware of all options. And uh, the best time to find out about clinical research is before you need access to a clinical trial. So I think that's a really important thing that I'm hopeful podcasts like this will, will help to educate a broader group. Absolutely. We're very hopeful of that too on our end. And I think that's why we started this podcast was so that we could have conversations like this, you know, really spread the word about many aspects of clinical trials and their availability, whether you want to participate or you want to be involved in the workforce. You know, we want to make sure we're really evangelizing the industry in that way is a great place to work and, you know, be involved as a participant. Um, and so with that said, you know, we've talked about hoping to inspire women to get into clinical research in the workforce. And I was wondering if we could end on a question that actually you brought up, Peyton, that I think is a fabulous question. Um, you know, as we're thinking about trying to inspire more women in the industry to either get into the industry or stay in it and really kind of climb that ladder. Um, I was wondering if you might want to share with us some advice that you would love to have given to your younger self when you were kind of getting started in the industry. Yes, I'll start. I mean, I wish I would have told my younger self a few things, right? Um, number one thing I wish I would have told my younger self was to stop sweating the small stuff. Um, you know, Cindy and I are both lucky to have grown children. And I know my my children have never seemed to even notice or remember that I didn't cook a lick at, the, at, at home. I, I was there for the important events, but I was traveling and accessible and not the same way that people are today. But in the end, it is really quality over quantity. And I think sometimes as women, um, we actually will judge that we're really failing on those things. And it can really impact our career path because we are feeling that pressure differently than men. And I, like Cindy, was lucky enough to work, work early on for a female leader who, when I shared those guilts, she shared with me, is that a question a male parent would ask themselves? And often she was absolutely spot on. No, they weren't asking themselves those questions. That was completely me putting that on myself. The other um, advice I'd give is that, you know, careers are not, a, are long and they're not a straight line. And what I didn't realize was some of the challenges that I was given early on, which felt like 
lateral moves to me at the time actually gave me the experience I needed to get where I am today. I did not see that. I really was much more in that kind of straight and narrow perfectionist thought everything was supposed to be a straight line up. Um, and that was wrong. Um, in fact, I would not be here today if I hadn't had more zigs, more zags and could have benefited from more zigs and zags. And I think it's sometimes hard to encourage uh, young leaders. And then the last thing I would say to women is just to really encourage them to consider healthcare careers and healthcare are something where you can feel really proud of the work and the impact that you're making every single day. And I know for me, that gives me the energy when you are doing so many things, right, for your households, for your families, and for your bigger work family. Um, it really nourishes the soul to know that it nourishes your purpose. And I'd say that would be the other thing is to, to do what you love. Um, the rest will definitely follow. Wow. Yeah. So hard to follow that, Peyton. Uh, maybe what would I have told my earlier self? And it, it's very comparable or adjacent to what Peyton highlighted. I, I, I think I would have told my younger self, raise your head from time to time and enjoy the journey. I had my head so far down and just sweating all the small stuff and trying, you know, we're always our own worst critic. And I, I think just take a heads up approach during your career and enjoy that that journey. And as you're doing so, I would have told my younger self, Tap more into those strong networks of support, be it your mentors, um, you know, your colleagues, leaders outside of your um, company or outside of your business line um, in a more deliberate manner. I, I think I was just blessed. I, it was passive and, and not active, and that could have uh, potentially caused me to look up more uh, if I had that that advice. And and the last thing, and I, I would just highlight to folks, um, and it was kind of something that, uh, again, I would love to have said that this is all deliberate pre-planning, but it wasn't. You know, I, I, a colleague, a mentor shared with me once, and I've never forgotten it, and that is the definition of success is when preparedness intersects with opportunity. You have to have both. You could be the most prepared, but if an opportunity doesn't come your way, what good is that? Now, what I do want to clarify is opportunity is also something that you seek out. It doesn't necessarily passively come by. So find organizations that really support your career aspirations. And if you have found that you've exhausted those opportunities, don't be afraid to leap. Don't be too patient uh, and don't be too afraid to take to take chances and, you know, take that uh, comfort and knowing that, you know, believe in yourself and have that confidence to stretch. Well, Great advice. That's amazing. I'm going to be taking all of this advice uh, for myself personally. I'm going to take it all. Uh, and I hope everyone listening also does. But with that, I think we've really covered everything we wanted to talk about today. I want to thank you both so much for joining me. I know you are two very busy women. Uh, and I really appreciate your time, your insights. And I'm definitely looking forward to continuing to work with both of you uh, on these and other issues impacting the industry um, as part of ACRO. So once again, thank you both so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll be having many more conversations in the future. Thanks for the opportunity. Always a pleasure. 
Well, that concludes season one of Acro's Good Clinical Podcast. I want to thank all of the guests who joined me on this inaugural season. Um, Huge thanks to the Acro team behind the scenes for helping us pull this podcast together. And a huge thank you to all of you who have listened. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope you will join us back here for season two very soon. Thanks. Thanks.